Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. Hello and welcome to episode 278 of Creative Control. On this episode, a conversation with Jane Bennett. Jane Bennett is a world-renowned jazz musician and composer who lives in Toronto, Ontario. A Juno Award winner and Grammy Award nominee, Bennett is a highly accomplished saxophonist and piano player, well-known for her incorporation of Cuban music and collaborations with Cuban musicians. Her 1991 album, Spirits of Havana, is considered one of the greatest jazz records ever. Her group, Jane Bennett and McKay Kay, released their new album, Odara, on October 14th via Linus Entertainment, and they'll be touring throughout Canada and the U.S. between September and November. Uh, Bennett will be appearing at the Guelph Jazz Festival on September 16th as part of Song Everlasting, an all-star tribute to the late pianist Don Pullen. Jane and I met on the terrace of her Toronto home recently to discuss all of those things and much more. So enjoy this conversation between myself and jazz legend Jane Bennett. Great to have you here. This is lovely. We're on a. This is technically a terrace. Yeah, it's it's actually it's it gets totally occupied by the raccoons in the evening. Those little, oh, really? those little. I don't want to say what they are. <laughs> they terrible. take over your. Yeah, whole terrace? can you see how they're like digging into the plants? Oh, and they're yeah. rather they're really you know I I fear them actually. They are I'm frightening. Ter- they look terrified. Like little, they look like little burglars. Yeah, they do. Actually. They kind of look exactly yeah. like little burglars. <laughs> they're kind of like. I, I don't like them myself. Yeah. And I've been seeing, they seem more, something's probably going on with the, 
the climate and the barometric pressure, but yes. they seem more brazen than they ever yes, have Yes, they before. are. They're not fearful of man. And uh, and now I'm, I don't know if you can see it, I've been um, dumping uh, cayenne pepper around the edges oh. of the porch and seeing if that works. Stinging their little fingers. <laughs> That's a little, you take a little too I'm much. I'm trying everything. A little too much glee in that uh, harm. I don't want to harm the raccoons. I don't think it's hurting them. No, sure. yeah. They I probably, think they like it. Yeah, there's always some spice up here, actually. Uh, what is this neighborhood we're in? We are in Parkdale. Parkdale. Yeah. How yep. long have you been here? Been here about 30, uh, 30 something odd years, maybe 33, 34 years. In this exact home? Yep, in the same place. We, uh, we used to live. First, we lived in Kensington Market, and then before that, we lived in uh, uh, down around Niagara King and King and King and Bathurst area. Mm-hmm. But um, we bought this place; it was a rooming house. Uh, do the math. Let me see. Nineteen eighty-one. Okay. Eighty, eighty-one. Um, and uh, it was a rooming house, and uh, this is its third incarnation of uh, renovations. It, we had. We weren't running a rooming house. Let's be. Let's yeah, get that. yeah, yeah. We you took, took over. over a rooming yes. house. Got it. And um, and then we we put two two three apartments in, and we lived in the basement for about twenty five years. And then when we finally um, paid off the house with renting out, um, we decided we wanted to get out of the basement and make the place back into being right, a house. Right. So we renovated it and brought it back to being a house. You're laughing. So, You're laughing. Yeah, we're now. laughing. <laughs> although now the house is all filled up with Cuban Cuban visitors that we work with when when the musicians come to stay. When we do our projects, the musicians, you know, usually yeah, yeah. stay with us in the house because you can't bill it people out. Um, so it has served us well. It's this house. basically still a rooming house in a manner <laughs> of speaking. Yes, for foreigners. Still lots of visitors coming by. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now you've lived in Parkdale then for a long time, and, and Parkdale is a, a an area of Toronto that's changed significantly over the years. Can you highlight some of the changes wow. that you've seen? Well, um, let me see. That when when my mom and dad came to see this house just after we bought it. They broke out into tears and were crying because this was like one of the worst areas at the time in yes, Toronto. Yes. It was considered, um, you know, where all the derelicts and it was like, um, you know, the Bowery or something like that. Oh, what's that? What's that book? Uh, Ca- Canary Did, Row? Uh, remember that I, book? I, I can remember it was by. Canary Row, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was kind of like, you know, the down and outers lived in this part. Um, but, of course... That has proven to everybody, you know, what happens with real estate. What what was uh, funky has become now totally, you know, the the place to live. And um, it's been gentrified. Really gentrified, yeah. <laughs> actually, that, the only thing that really worries me about our sort of close neighborhood is when I see a Starbucks go in. I'll be kind of bummed about that because right now we sort of have we have a few coffee culture. Uh, shops, yep, yep. but that, I really like that aspect. You know, there's not too much change. There's a little too many cash money places. Yeah, I'm not crazy like about the, the cash monies. Uh, yeah, I don't know what those are called. Yeah, yeah, they're sort yeah. of bre- depressing because they people have to pay a lot yeah. of money to get their checks Still cashed, ex- where a bank won't. Right, 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 right. But generally, we re- we really love it. I mean, we're close to High Park, which is a beautiful place to go to, and we're close to the lake. Um, all these, the gardener kind of screwed things up. I mean, that's the only thing that sort of sad about this area is that 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 damn gardener i mean it's wait a minute when was the gardener erected this oh is gosh like the major overpass. 50s yeah 50s oh so you would, it's been here the whole time when you say the it gardener, has yeah i know i know things up well you know at one point up. they were talking about putting it underground yes. and all these things with the cost of all of this and is it too late and 
I haven't really kept up with all those the what's happening with that, but I don't think that will ever happen. But um, wasn't that a Rob Ford thing? I think it might have been. Right, and yeah. now that yeah, I, I think there's a lot of opposition to that. Yes, because of the cost. Yes, because yeah. of the cost. I mean, they did it in Boston, and it took forever. But mm. and you know, I mean, it's pretty hard to take people out of their cars, and it's, you know, it's, yeah. it would take a lot of time and. And that's how people get from one end of the city to the other end, and I don't know. I don't hear it right now. It's not too bad, but... You can hear it? And the only other time... No, I, I can hear, hear a little it. hum. It's, yeah. it's pretty good right now, but the air show, that's... Oh, that's, God. No, that's why I took off. You yeah. were trying to find <laughs> yes, me. Yes, that's right. So this was like living hell, because you you know you start to really think about what it must be like to live in a war zone. There's been a lot of conversation yeah. about that exact fact. We've had a lot of... Uh, refugees, a lot of new immigrants saying it reminds them of I know. their war-torn I know. homelands. And uh, I don't know. Very there seemed to be more pushback to the Toronto Air Show this year than any that any more than yeah, I can remember. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, they really, they should move it out to, you know, where do you live? Guelph! <laughs> don't bring it to Guelph. I do not want an Guelph, air, Toronto Air Show in Guelph. I mean, it is ridiculous. But uh, and uh, what, what about the city generally? Are you feeling okay? Like you're... I really love Toronto, yeah. you know, I feel like we, uh, and I love Guelph too, I mean, I like, I like Ontario, Yes. I really feel like an, Ontario is a great province for me, I mean, the East Coast is really nice, the West Coast is really nice, but I feel really at home um, in Ontario, just, well, just for all the lakes that we have, and the amount of um, nature that is accessible, yep. and to be able to have to be so close to the great things that absolutely are happening all the time in Toronto, you know, it's a really, it's um, it's a really great city. Having lived in Paris for four years and um, traveled a, a lot of places in the world, I I, I really think Toronto's we're very fortunate. You to learned be here. to value your your, mm -hmm. your city. When you say you lived in Paris, uh, and I mean we established you've been in this particular house since 1981. Where are you actually from originally? You Toronto. Toronto. So, you're from so maybe Toronto. that's why I feel hmm. so for you know com comfortable here because I st I have history here. Yeah. Uh, I went to five different high schools, and so when I perform in Toronto, kept getting expelled. Is that what happened? <laughs> Oh, do I have to admit that? <laughs> Were you getting suspended <laughs> My from lips are sealed. <laughs> Anyhow, I just like t touring early. Okay, I get it, yeah. So, <laughs> I, I, it's funny because sometimes when I perform, my people will come up to me and say, um, I went to school with you, and I have to go, well, which one? Which one? Which school? And it's it's quite fun because a lot of people... There's still a lot of people that st are still in Toronto here. Now, were you, I don't want to pry too much. Terrible student, I was, Were yes. you a dropout? Like, would you just fail, flunk out, too? and have to go to a different school? Yeah, all of it. Kicked out, flunked out. Bad behavior? Yeah. What kinds of things did you do? <laughs> I got to know. Hey, come on, this is a... No, look, this no, is a they're not going to bust you for it now. <laughs> no one's going to care. You could. I'm just, I'm just curious. I guess I was probably attention-getting. Okay. I wasn't a very good student. <laughs> it's hard to believe, really. I was a pretty creative kid. I was pretty, pretty active, very energetic. Sure. And um, some of the, some, you know, some of the schools I went to didn't really have, didn't have a lot of, like, one of the schools I went to had no music and no art. And I was there for grade nine, and that was, could have been, that was like the worst place to put me after in grade seven and eight, I had been in pretty much a free school. Right. I was at a school that initiated something called 
the Hall Dennis report, which was like, if you want to just paint all day and uh, not do anything else, um, no French, no history, no math, uh, that's just fine. Just, you know, let the, let the child develop themselves. So okay. I kind of did that for two years, like painted and played the clarinet and Wait, looked how, at my navel. How, and how old were you? So great. I would be... Uh, or what grade? In that age, I'd be like uh, 11, 12. Okay. 11, 12. Wow. So pretty, pretty formative year. And then, then after that, I was put in a private school. Oh. So that was my down, my downward <laughs> turn started then. And you I went, went from a free school to a private school. Yeah. Wow. So that was rough. And I had no skills. And so when I got to that school, the only way to really establish myself was kind of to start a gang. A gang? <laughs> you started a gang? <laughs> Holy Lord. I, I started a band. Let's put it. I started a band. Like a West Side Story over <laughs> a here. Band of, you, started right. a, you started a band da, or a gang? Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, so I was promptly thrown out of that school because I went into a school that was, you know, you know, they didn't want a troublemaker. And it just sort of continued as I went from school to school. And, and just once, you know, once you sort of get... It's like when you're the class clown or you're the, the whatever, you you get nailed by the teacher and yeah. the teacher is on your case uh, you're the brand, rest of the time. Branded, yeah. You're branded. Yeah. So I, I would go from school to school as I would finally get a reputation. She's a troublemaker. And so I would leave and go to the next one. And so that's sort of how it went. Were you like abusive of the teachers or were you just like vandalizing? What kind of stuff? I was just trying to have fun. I'm trying to have fun. Trying to have fun and, and, uh, no, I don't think I was abusive of teachers. I think I was I was sort of afraid. Well, no, I did have authority figure problems. Yeah, that's true. I, you were I, incorrigible. You were not someone that they could even figure out, and they were just like, we don't want you. We here. don't need, yeah, exactly. Hmm. Who wants a kid who's acting up all the time in class? So that was me. <laughs> that, that's Maybe that explains a lot. I don't know, but we'll get to it. It really does. So you're 11 or 12, and you're painting, and you're you're playing clarinet. Is that your first time really trying to play an instrument? Yeah, I mean, my parents bought our house um, in Toronto because it was a piano. My my father loved music. He wasn't a musician, but he loved to hear music, and he sort of grew up on a farm, and, you know, music was not really in, in his life. So I'm the youngest of three kids, and when the time came to move into a bigger house, because I came along, um, they saw this house and it had a piano. So that, oh. to them, that was a real bonus because the piano came with the house. And uh, I gravitated pretty quickly to the piano. It was kind of a funny story about that because what happened was my sister, who's seven years older, Sarah, they began piano lessons for her. And um, so she was studying and, and uh, I think she found it very hard. And one day when my mom was in the kitchen, my sister was, was um, apparently playing this piece. And um, my mom said, Sarah, she yelled to her, Sarah, that sounds so much better. It's getting really good. And she, my sister was just a few feet away and said, that's not me. <laughs> Oh man! So that was me. Man, you were you were a troublemaker <laughs> so, in but every I, regard. But I was hearing it so much. Right. I was hearing it so much that I just learned it by ear. By ear. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. I just heard it, so I was like, oh, "Is this how it goes?" So. Um, and to your parents, you weren't you weren't a lost cause yet. 
Not yet. Uh, you know what happens when you're the youngest of, of three? Your parents kind of go, oh, whatever. We've already had two yeah, kids. Exactly. And like this cutters some slack. And I just remember always my both my brother and my sister saying, we never got away with that. You know, I'd come in at three or four in the morning and it was like, we never got away with that. But I mean, even as I'm a parent, <laughs> I got two kids. And yeah, you take... Which you have to look forward to. Yeah, well, Watch out for deviancy. They already act like teenagers as far as I can tell. I'm already yeah. getting lip and whatever. But, yep. but I do find that... I'm conscious of it. I'm trying to get better, but fewer photographs of my daughter compared to my old. My son is my oldest. That's happened. So when you say I needed attention, you're the youngest of three. No one's paying attention to you as much. I think I got attention actually. You did to be to be totally honest okay. because of the age difference between you all. Certain amount of attention. I mean, at some point, of course, there was probably none. But my sister was pretty. My sister Sarah was pretty great. You know, with me taking taking me places, and my brother, which is there's a huge age difference, would probably be the one who I have to say really got me into music. Oh, really? Because he had a very he had um you know he was already in university when I was just a kid little, and um, he was still kind of living at home before he moved out, and he had a record collection that sort of run the whole gamut of um, from. Jazz records, Bill Evans, Herbie Mann, Charles Mingus, Thelonious Monk, to Bob Dylan, to Joan Baez, to that whole period of folkways recordings, um, you know, obscure recordings of slave songs, of uh, Japanese Kyoto music, hmm. Indian music. He had everything. And so being a curious kid, I was always in his... Um, record collection in his room and little things you know he let me take away his little portable record player he had this little record player that folded up in a box that right. i took away to camp oh and like nobody had ever seen one of those <laughs> and i had like because i loved music as a kid i had this record player at camp wow you brought your records with you yeah, I brought a few records. You know, oh. at those times they were like little 45s right. and stuff like that. Right. Martha Martha and the Vandells and people like that, you know, played these little 45s. Okay, so you're okay. So that well, that's that's important. I did get attention. I did get attention. I just wanted more attention. You needed more than you got. <laughs> you got enough, but you needed more probably. Okay. So you're playing uh, piano by ear. Uh, is this prior to the clarinet stuff? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So piano by ear after this incident, are you starting to play it more? Yeah, I mean, then I started the piano lessons, and that was on and off for many, many years. I didn't, you know, be, I was pretty undisciplined kid, so when I, when I, when I had piano lessons, I was really not, you know, I didn't really like it. I mean, especially in public school, I did take piano lessons. They had a lunch hour program, which actually must must have been pretty uh, formative for me then. Yeah. But like at twelve noon, instead of you going to the lunchroom with the rest of the kids and having um, your whatever it was on your lunch bag you brought your lunch bag to to a room where uh, a teacher came with cardboard keyboards laid them out on the desk and you had your lunch well she sat at the piano and you played this cardboard oh, keyboard right. and learned pieces and then you would get your five minutes at the piano so I did that maybe for a year so it's it you know it, it I learned how to read music at that pretty early age but then, you know, when it got hard, when everything got hard, that's when I sort of tended to quit all the time. And <laughs> uh, later I went to a piano teacher, more serious, and I was like, you know, always in tears. I don't want to do it. And, and um, when I hit about age 15, 16, I got very serious about the piano because I think okay. at that point I, 
I was dropping out of school, and I decided that I really liked the piano, so I started to... There was a teacher around the corner, and he took me on. I remember going in, I played the Love is, Love is Blue, which was a popular pop song at the time, yeah. and I think the love theme from Romeo and Juliet, and one Bach prelude that my next-door neighbor, who was a very important person in my life... She was from Germany. She was a concert pianist. So she had taught me this prelude. So I went in and played these three pieces, and the teacher, Harry Heap was his name. He was a great teacher. uh, said, well, I don't teach pop, (laughs) but you're very talented. I can hear you're very musical, and I'll take you on, but this is what you got to do. I only take 10 students, and you'll be my 10th student. And and so he worked me very hard. I, I never memorize pieces of music at that time and he forced me to like eight nine pieces at a time I would be memorizing all at once I found that very difficult because it was like changing gears but he had a method it was like learn two bars of each piece a day it was very mathematical the way I went about it um and for a while it was really great but you know when it got hard I'd cry and want to quit and I did quit for a little bit and then I went back to him when I was about 17 and really went at it very seriously. Oh, so you need a little breaks. I guess so. You need breaks from parameters and discipline. Yeah. I mean, I think I think he he saw something in me that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of discipline in my background, just even with my parents at school. And he really disciplined me, and I sort of was bucked it for a while. And then I realized that if I followed through... That I would, ex- I started to excel. Yes. And um, I guess that was a good feeling because I'd, I'd always been a kind of a kid who quitted things when they got hard. And he made me really bear down. And I eventually got my grade 10 piano, which oh, was wow. a big accom- accomplishment for me. Yeah, I know. Because I couldn't yeah. even finish brownies, you know. I was like, <laughs> that was even too much. So I, um, I felt very good about that. But the strange thing that then happened with, with that was... I, because I did go at it with such um, uh, focus and and not taking breaks, I ended up developing a tendonitis. So I eventually had to switch gears from the piano, classical piano, and that's later how I got into jazz. Okay, so so let's let's, let's start there. So so it was actually a physiological limitation Mm. and maybe an emotional and mental I think it, no. I think a lot of it was uh, like a, a yeah a, emotional and and and, and physical too. Um, there was a bunch of things, you know. Like I was sitting too low at the piano and putting a lot of or too high at the piano. Excuse me, yeah. too high at the piano and putting a lot of stress on my wrists and not taking breaks. Yeah. you always got to take breaks, and but you know sometimes the voice in your head. You you just don't say hey well, you I'm, become I'm infa- fatiguing. You become infatuated playing a musical instrument. Yeah, you just you know you just forget and 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 I felt like oh I'm I'm look how, look how hard I'm working and I was was working hard yeah. but you got to take breaks you yeah. just got to do it and so you can do damage and I did do damage and so off I went to San Francisco so I would have been about age 20 at this time well, wait a minute what do you mean off you went to San Francisco so off I went to San Francisco in the natural <laughs> course of things off I went to San okay, Francisco well, so, it's sort of boring but anyway I they were I was seeing doctors and they were maybe going to do surgery oh, uh, on my wrist and my mother wanted a second opinion luckily and we went to a second opinion and they said well I total rest Take like six weeks of doing nothing, hmm. no piano, 
and uh, somewhere warm, because I remember this was happening in the wintertime. It was like January, February. So I went off with my cousin to to uh, San Francisco, and we traveled all through the California region. And um, one of the nights when we were in San Francisco was a night that Charles Mingus was playing. Wow. And I had heard Mingus. My brother was a huge jazz fan, as I mentioned. And we would sometimes go for the matinees here in Toronto at the Colonial Tavern, right. which had great shows in the matinees, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And on Saturdays, I think they were. Saturdays or Sundays? Saturdays. Saturdays. Okay. And um, so I'd seen Mingus, and I'd seen Ross on Roland Kirk, and I'd seen Mose Allison. I'd seen a lot of, lot, of, lot of the greats there. But Mingus had, you know, definitely left a very profound effect. Yeah. And I borrowed my brother's Mingus record. So, you know, eclectic taste. So, But anyhow, when I went to San Francisco, I saw that Mingus was playing at Keystone Corners. And I went the first night. And then I went back a second night, and I went back a third. I went every single night that he was playing, and um, with my cousin. And uh, when I came back from that trip, I had pretty much decided that I wanted to play jazz. I, I, I felt like when I heard Mingus's group, I thought that all the musicians that were up on stage, and one of them was Don Pullen. Yeah, yeah. That they were all classical musicians. Because the music was like of such a high caliber, and it just seemed like so, just so incredible. And so I was sure they had classical training, but I realized it was improvisation too. But I still thought there was all this classical training right, happening, right. and and so I thought, well, maybe I can somehow trans, you know, my training that I've got on t to do something different, so it's not totally wasted, and. Um, that was shortly then that I, I think I picked up the flute then. When I got back, I started playing the flute, you know, just monkeying around with it and, and sitting at the piano. And but, but, but seeing Mingus five times, what drew you to the flute, per se? I mean, what um, well, originally I had wanted to play the flute in the school band, and there was all the flutes were gone. Oh. So I was given the clarinet. Right. So clarinet was was the one... They wanted me to play violin. They kept pushing the string instrument at me, and I really wanted to play a band instrument. So finally, the music teacher in grade five gave, personally gave me his silver clarinet, oh. the long antique ones just to learn on. Okay. And eventually, and then when I went to a private school, I had to give the clarinet back to him because I was no longer, he was, you know, off somewhere else, and I was no longer um, in a program. Oh, I see. The okay. a school that had any music. Okay. So anyhow, but so the flute was, I was drawn to the flute, and I think I went and rented one from Long and McQuaid. I think that's how it's, I think I rented it. Okay. So yeah, so anyway, I, um, yeah, you know what, I think I rented the flute, and that's why, why this change of the way I went home, like lots of accidents happened for me in my life, and these accidents when I do something different, something else happens. So I think that when it was coming from Long and McQuaid's, for some reason, I was w walking up Spadina, and I got to Davenport, and I saw this school that said Toronto New School of Music. Right. And I thought, wow, that's, what's that? And I'm curious, so I walked into the door, and there was Howard Springs sitting there. Really? 
Yeah, at a desk. And I was like, what is this new school? What, like, what, what is this? And he said, well, we, we teach jazz here. And I said, really? <laughs> was like, and Howard, just so people who don't know, Howard yeah. was a teacher, right? Yeah, Howard yeah. Howard's uh, in Guelph, strangely enough, yeah, too. Yeah. It's all these coincidences. And Teaching, was, he teaches like jazz history. And yeah. Stuff. Yeah, I took, a, I took the, the jazz course with yeah. him when I went to school, yeah. So he had been up at York University and... Uh, I mean, you know, when I came back from that trip, I was like, I had all these things in my head, like, well, how, I love jazz, I think I love jazz, but how do I, I mean, I'm, I'm white, I'm a woman, yeah. um, I'm, you know, like, how do you, those guys were all black musicians, and like, they probably all live in the ghetto, and it's like, just in their DNA to play that music, and I was like, I had all these, like, sort of stigmas against why I couldn't do it. Not realizing it's like a real skill, that, like anything else you you learn to do. And um, anyhow, so I walked in and and I and Howard will say, "Well, we have like um, some jazz workshops here, and we have a few people yep. teaching." And I was like, "Wow!" So then I think I started I started to take uh, flute. F- jazz flute or whatever with somebody. I think it was Don Englert, maybe later Jane. F- I think Jane Fair was later. Okay. And then I t- did a workshop. So I was playing a little bit of flute in the workshop and then playing some piano, like, you know, like. The workshop was kind of an improvised setting. Yeah, like people just, just signed playing? up. Yeah, yeah, it was on Saturday. So, yeah. like, he picked, he put people together and there was an instructor. I think my first instructor was Al Henderson from the group Time Warp. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um,. And you're you're sorry. There's an instructor for a workshop. Yeah, it's an it's an improvised workshop. Yeah. So what he would do is like yeah, hand out a chart. Like for example, I remember one of the first charts I learned was Mingus's Nostalgia in Times Square Blues. Ba do da, do do da, Okay, and then then we. We would play the head, and then, and then he'd say, "Okay, what's the scale?" And everybody would play the scale, and uh, and so we would just—that's how it would go. And we'd take it home, and you'd work on it, and you listen to it, and so that was really my first foray into into jazz. Those little workshops, um, meeting other like-minded people that really yeah. loved the music. Yeah. Um. I started to hang out with all the p- people in the workshops. You know, we'd go over to somebody's house and listen to records. Sometimes we'd meet at a club like Yellow Fingers, which was in Yorkville, and hear s- some people. I would go on Saturdays to the Jazz and Blues um, store on Avenue Road and hang in there for, you know, a few hours, ask them to, you know, who's this guy, Charlie Parker? Can you put this record on? <laughs> I don't know who this guy is. They make you feel like terrible you don't know who charlie parker right. is snobby record store people <laughs> yeah exactly always they're yeah. always they're turn off but they're, they're out there um so i just started to submerge myself in the music that way do you do you think that like i think it's come to light more so maybe in the last decade or so but i feel like toronto's history as a jazz music destination is sort of under appreciated sure is like there was incredible things everyone came through here right mm-hmm. and you saw a lot of them mm. did i ever i mean to, to having you know having seen russ on roland kirk three or four times and mingus you know three or four times and mose allison and who oh, some of the i mean even back uh 
I mean, Steve Lacey, who I later studied with, yeah. and Don Pullen, and Dewey Redman, and Charlie Hayden. There was an there was an incredible scene, and there was a good Toronto scene too. Yeah, you know that was a bit underground, but um, who were some of the players in Toronto's? Hmm. Scene? Well, Claude Ranger, of course, Claude Ranger, Don Thompson, Catherine Moses. Um, the Mother Necessity Big Band, that was always a great band to see because it was so, you know, it was made up of uh, local Toronto musicians and yeah. and playing original music. Um, Sonny Krenich, of course, who was amazing. Um, and would you collaborate with these people? No. No. Never. No. Okay. Wasn't sure. No. In any capacity. I'm just starting to play at this time, and I'm in awe. Yeah, okay. I just wasn't I'm sure. I'm in awe. Nope. You ended I'm up just in workshop circumstances. No, it didn't. It didn't uh, my, first, my first record that I did was 1986, Yeah. and that was after having gone to, to New York with Larry, and we saw... Um, we saw Tony Williams at the Village Vanguard and sat, you know, probably as close as you and I were. I was like re pretty much right beside Tony Williams. And um, at that time, around that time, I'd been asked by what's now Jazz 91, but was then CJRT. They had a series called the Sounds of Toronto Concerts, and they happened at the Ontario Science Centre. Oh. And they were recorded for the radio station. It was a one-hour show, and Ted O'Reilly was the host. And it was always reviewed by writer Mark Miller. Oh, okay. Um, so it got reviewed in the Globe. And I got, it was like something that any musician would aspire to, you know, to get the call. And I, I was totally in shock when I got called by Ted O'Reilly to do one of those. Right. Um, he heard me playing at Jim Galloway's 50th birthday party. So we're going way back, which was at the Moss Armories. It was just a jam session. And he heard me playing soprano. And he called me and said, would you like to do one of the, the, the concerts? And um, I didn't even have a band at the time. Yeah. And it was like, wow, it was so exciting. And, and so Larry and I started talking about, you know, who would be the band. And, of course, the first person was Claude Ranger. Right. Because he was such a fiery drummer. He had been playing with um, Sonny Greenwich and Don Thompson. And, and he, was, he was just amazing. And everybody sort of said to me, oh, you know, he's crazy and he's a very fiery person. And, you know, you will, he will probably, we would never do it. And, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and I, of course, when I, which is whenever people tell you that stuff, it's usually the opposite. Because when I called him up, he was totally, when do you want to play? Yeah. He was totally, totally thrilled to, to one, you know, somebody is calling him to, to come and do, get, you know, at that time it was a decent paying gig. Yeah. And, um... And so he, we started with him, and then we put we put the band together, um, and we did that concert, and it got a very good review by Mark Miller, and I, when the when the concert was done, I made a cassette of the concert. I don't know how I did that, but I somehow made a cassette of the concert, and it was the first year of the of the uh, the Du Maurier. Jazz festivals being organized right across Canada. Okay, right. So very, very first year. So it's like 86, 87. No, no, earlier. Maybe, maybe 80, no, is 85, 86. Okay. Wow, okay. Maybe off a little bit, but anyhow, so. <laughs> That's it was a lot a to remember. Yeah. It was a first year, and I sent it out across the country with the review, 
and I got accepted. And that was the most exciting thing because here I was going to go across the country with Claude Ranger in my band. And I had a few original compositions and that was, uh, that was like my big, big, big moment. And then shortly after that, started to think about making our first recording. And okay. then that first recording was done, in due time was done with um, uh, Dewey Redman, the late Dewey Redman and the late Don Pollen and Claude Ranger. Wow. Yeah. I want to, I want to, that's, that's amazing. I want to jump back a little bit to, cause you mentioned Mark Miller a few mm-hmm. times there, who was a prominent jazz, uh, jazz critic and jazz writer for the Globe and Mail. He hasn't, he retired six, seven years ago mm-hmm. or something like that. I mentioned that Toronto seems to have this underappreciated jazz history. Do you have a take on why? Why, why is it that we, cause I think that's true of a lot of Toronto music happenings, whether it's punk or, you know, they come and they go and for some reason, they're not terribly well documented. Um, and do you have a take on that? Like, was there anything about, were there any politics in the jazz community in Toronto that maybe helped, didn't help it? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I to say. I mean, you know, there was, a, there was, you know, the people like the Archie Elaines, um, there was a bit of a racial thing that oh. happened, I think. Um, there was a, you know, I think. A lot of that stuff was under, like you just said, underappreciated. The jazz has always been, you know, kind of um, a bit of a niche. I guess if you look at the folk scene, I wonder if the folk scene yeah. is it, it's the same as the jazz scene. I'm not sure. Be, not, it'd yeah. be worth looking at, you know, to yeah. see if it's if it's a Canadian thing. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. If it's a Canadian thing or if it's an actually a demographic of just the the art form. Um, yeah, you because know. it is a niche art form, and on some level, with the advent of gentrification—I shouldn't say advent; it's probably always been that way—but yeah. people tear down buildings that, like you know, now yeah. if you're on a punk history crawl in Toronto or yeah. a jazz history crawl in Toronto, you'd go to look at the address, and it's of what was. It's yeah, it, dollars yeah. to donuts. It's a Starbucks. Yeah. Uh, or because I said donuts, a Krispy Kreme. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like yeah. it's or a Tim Hortons or something, yeah. and uh, that's uh, just I guess a part of evolution. Well, Colonial is a great example. Yeah. If you look what the Colonial is, I I saw somebody explain it. It's like a little tiny, not even a parquet. It's like two walls. Uh, with a maybe there might be a plaque that not even a bum wants to lie on right. those, on the grass that's right there. I mean, it's really it's really really sad. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
for for a, a club that had such huge history yeah. in Canada and um is you know, and I think part of it, too, is that the jazz, you know, a lot of the jazz community is not really united Yeah. Uh, in general. Like, you know, you pe- people are people are kind of struggling, uh, uh, not struggling along, but because it's a different time now. But and then people were struggling along and they didn't they didn't fight the, f- the, the fight, you know, because they were maybe just fighting to, to keep um, to keep afloat, you know. Well, there's the struggle aspect, but I think there could be ego there as well. I think there's when you're doing something subversive and mm. potentially cutting edge, you can be doing it for selfless reasons, yeah. or you can be doing it for selfish yeah. reasons. And when the two, and sometimes it's a mixture of both. You're, yeah. you're doing something to elevate your own standing as much as you are a, an artist you like, and and that, yeah. that's a conflict. That's a tension. Yes, it's. It's a really good pr- question. I mean, it's a little it's a little depressing. I mean, I know CBC did document some things, but then they didn't keep a lot of things. Yeah. Um, don't get me started about the CBC right now because <laughs> I'm, you know, very disappointed in what's been happening there, but um, you know, there's stories of them just throwing tapes out in the dumpsters or, there. Or, or taping over things because they couldn't afford or they were mm. told to do so. Yeah, it's yeah. Anyway, these are horror stories. I I do think we should Interestingly, well, before I get to Guelph, which is a common ground mm-hmm. for us, um, uh, we you, we talked about your piano. We talked a little bit about your flute. How many instruments do you play? What else do you play right now? A flute and uh, flute and soprano sax and piano. Okay, yeah, and it, that's yeah. what you're kind of best known for. That's what I'm best known for. Right. Not singing. Right, right, <laughs> and 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 that's so where the real money is, actually. <laughs> Damn. And and in your capacity as a musician, have you found yourself playing sessions that were notable have you found yourself playing with artists that are more well known has that happened because you've won uh, what have you won you've won grammys i've been nominated twice for nominated grammys but let's say i won them yeah i won them <laughs> <laughs> and juno Fact awards check. juno awards and things like that yeah. i mean yeah. you're a very well established well artist. i would like to do more collaboration actually yeah i always feel like i'm the um, more so the one that sort of reaches out to people but then you get sort of sometimes a reputation of um especially with the cuban thing like a lot of people will feel oh she's that chick who's on that cuban bandwagon (laughs) (laughs) but but if you go back into my history you see that you know we did i've done a there was always you know that was something that that larry and i always reached out to when people were larry larry kramer my husband yes i'm trumpet player uh when people were coming through Toronto or, you know, we would get a heads up, you know, like, for example, John Chikai, the late saxophonist, Danish saxophonist, came here for a little bit. And I can't remember the reason why he was in Toronto. He was here seeing Bill Smith or something. Uh-huh. And the next thing I know, we were organizing um, some concerts at a place called Clinton's right. with John Chikai. And... Um, John Hicks, the piano player, he was, he, oh, I know what, one of the things too, we used to do a lot of jazz workshops at our house right. also. So, <coughs> excuse me, if somebody was like performing at Cafe de Copan that had a piano, a lot of solo piano concerts there, um, we would try and get them over here in the afternoon, spread the word to musicians, 15 $10, whatever it would be, yeah. come over and we're going to do a w- workshop, you know, play with John, he's going to teach us some stuff and. Barry Harris is another player. Jimmy Nepper's another player. James Newton's another. This house was really 
a house of music for many people to come through. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm diverting here a little bit, but um, in terms of, I've always like really reached out. Like my whole my whole development has been within the so social interaction yeah, of yeah, musicians. Sure. I didn't last at university. I went up to uh, York University. Everybody thinks I graduated from there, and that's <laughs> good they do. And that you've won multiple <laughs> oh, well, Grammys. Of course, of course, uh, of course I graduated, not. Um, the music program at York, right? yeah, yeah, the jazz, the jazz, jazz program. Um, but, you know, I met Larry, and, and, and I did, you know, it, it gave me a good start and a foundation, and, but I've always, like, always felt, for me, the best way that I personally learn is the personal um, uh, interaction interaction with, with artists, and I've just learned so much. I mean, just standing on a bandstand with Dewey Redmond was, yeah. like, huge. And sometimes you might fall on the fa on your face. Sometimes you might not. Um, but that's the way that the I've. That's the way that's been the most. Um, uh, um, my growth. I, I, I see my growth happens development in that, in that, there. In that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, so getting to Guelph, I think the first time I saw you perform was in Guelph, and you were. You mentioned this Cuban music thing, uh, and I think I saw you performing, I think it was as a duo, potentially, wasn't it? Uh, who knows? I can remember. It might have been with Lario Duran, a duo. Yeah. yeah it might was, have been. Uh, yeah. It was many, it was probably so long ago. 14 years ago Yeah, or maybe longer. It was in a church, maybe? Yes, that's right. I remember because we went backstage and we put on, uh, Ilario and I put on... Uh, we put on the choir outfits. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I remember that. At the church? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we that's did that. right. Yeah. And so then you, uh, I became aware of the fact that you did have this connection to Cuban music. Can you explain? How that happened? Yeah. Well, that happened pretty simply because of um, trying to go to Mexico and getting sick every time I went to Mexico. So I went three times and I got deathly ill. And, uh, you know, February, wanting to get away for a week or January, whatever. And... Uh, told a friend and a friend told me that she'd gone to Cuba with her family and didn't get sick and she had gotten sick in Mexico too stomach stuff yeah you just felt bad yeah okay felt real bad like I didn't like I was in bed the whole time yeah. I was there yeah always. it's not good it's bad and um probably not enough warnings about the water and whatever. well I was so careful but it's still managed yeah. I don't know why you know some something in my system but anyhow so I there was an ad and it was a very cheap uh trip to go to Cuba, um, it was like you know three hundred and something dollars for a week. Santiago to Cuba, a week, three meals a day, and flight. I was like, "What do we have to lose?" <laughs> and we went. Mm -hmm. And so from the moment got off the plane, there was music, and so it was pretty much that. It was just like music everywhere, great music to boot. It seemed like this, um, I mean, I didn't even think about the opportunities at the time. It was just like, oh, my God, here you can go, to, you can, you know, four hours away and be in this totally different environment and be surrounded by music. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that happened was we were, you know, because we went to Santiago, we were in an area where tourism was just opening up and nobody, um, nobody realized like they thought we were russians when we were walking <laughs> around and stuff and 
and because um, no tourists tourists were just starting just starting this this hotel that first night that we were there there was an 18 piece a group of 18 musicians playing and there was 10 people in the hotel wow so wow. more people on the bandstand. Right. So I hearing like this music, and I walk up the hill and thinking it's a you know great sound system by the outdoor bar, and I look at this like what looks like an apparition of just these guys all dressed in white and you know four trombones and three saxophones and three trumpets, and it was just like oh my god, right? This music is like nothing I've ever heard. Boom, ging, ging, You're hearing this like funky mambos and cowbell, and it was just like. This is unbelievable. I ran back, told Larry, grabbed our horns, and went and sat sort of in the front row. And there was like probably up all of five tourists sitting there. And, um, you know, the musicians looked at us, looked at the horn cases, and come on up. Wow. And, yeah. Wow, just like that. So the first mo- yeah, because they're curious too. Like, yeah. see if these guys can play. So up we went, and the trumpet player ended up being a very, very good friend of ours for the rest of our lives. Um, and just passed away just a few years ago, but he was an amazing symphonic player, but jazz and Cuban, typical Cuban. And What was his name? Paisan Mallet. Okay. He was amazing, and he later started, you know, traveling all over Europe with his own group. He was... He was one of the, one of the greats. Um, and this this yeah. trip, this, this discovery, uh, so to speak, on your part anyway, this predates maybe a, a, a global or international fascination with Cuban music that uh, yeah. occurred maybe 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, we when we came back from that trip, three weeks later we went to Havana because people kept telling, well, you got to meet this guy. He's in Havana and you got to meet this woman, Mercedes Valdez. She's in Havana. You came home and then went back? Everybody was like, yeah, people were like, well, you just went on vacation. Now where are you going? And it was like, <laughs> research. And, uh, well, we had, you know what? We recognized on that first trip, being adventurers, both of us, that we had discovered something that nobody had. Yeah. I mean, there was such a connection. I mean, in that first day I was there, I heard a typical song group, which is classic Cuban music, in the airport. And then got on a bus, hour and a half, got to the resort. There was a folkloric group dancing or, you know, playing and dancing around the buses. We're getting off the bus and playing these cornetta china, this instrument I'll show you. Yeah. And these wild, you know, mysterious sounds. It's like, where am I in Africa now? Right. And, uh, and then that night, the big band. And then, and then the next day going into town and buying records and was like, this is unbelievable. If you love music, like how can you not? It was just we were just bowled over. Yeah, as musicians, as music fans. Yeah, and yeah. people, and then right away when you're a musician and people see you carrying your horn, they're like, and there's music everywhere. They're saying, "Hey, come play here and come play here," and you're playing and you're connecting and you're just. I mean, it was just uh, we were elated. So when we came back and then got names of people that we should meet, it was like saying, "Okay, now you've been to." Uh, You've been to uh, Wisconsin, now go to New York City, you know? <laughs> You're going to really hear some shit. Right, right. So off we went to, to Havana, and it was true. Even though it was a big business center, it was still major, you know, a couple of the major studios there. and So we just started really mixing it up, and we kept going and going and meeting more and more musicians. And so it, that was, the first trip was 1982. Right. And by 1987... 
we had really made some very groundbreaking friendships with two people, Guillermo Barreto, who was a drummer who worked with Nat King Cole and um, Sarah Vaughn wow. and Jeez. all kinds of the great, some of the great visiting jazz artists. And he, uh, you know, he broke a lot of racial barriers because, um, for, for instance, Nat King Cole would not play with anybody else except Guillermo. Oh, okay. That was his drummer. He was sort of in the Joe Jones style, and yeah. he was he was a great one of the great Cuban drummers, and Mercedes, and he loved jazz and he knew harmony and stuff like that. He loved sitting down at the piano playing all the weird uh-huh. harmonies, and and Mercedes was the great um, interpreter of the Afro-Cuban folkloric music. So she was a religious singer, but she was also a popular singer too. She did do- both musics, and she was groundbreaking in the sense that she was the first person, male, female, to go over the airwaves singing the folkloric music, which okay. was underground. Right. And people didn't people didn't know about the san- the music of the Santeria. She was singing to the music of the Orishas and this was like major. Um so they became very, very close friends and we started to talk about this idea of making a record together. Right. And it took a good three years of planning and cutting through red tape and all of that in 1990 it was finally done we made our first record and so that was six years prior to the Ry Cooter the thing. Buena Vista Social Club mm-hmm. what was your record called? that record was called Spirits of Havana yeah and it's just um, you sh- we have to get that you have to get that we'll have to like <laughs> sure I might have some pro- promo copy um, so you're that's re- like you're reissuing it it's re it just it came out two weeks ago okay. on the True North Linus uh, with like extensive liner notes 36 page booklet oh, wow. and bonus tracks that never made it to the original okay so it's two CD set great so it's like a big 25th anniversary oh wow that's amazing so it is that was nice and it was like Robert the late Robert Palmer journalist did the the liner notes for it and a number of other people have contributed yeah to make this this special booklet and stuff and rare obscure photos that were done from the session mm-hmm. um, so is it a substantial project um, yeah so and then you became kind of synonymous well then what happened yeah the very we were lucky because i mean that was a huge you know we really felt strongly that about what we were doing and i think a lot of people have continued to try and copy that record yeah. the, the, the format of that record um i can't say for sure that was the first time that bata drums were thrown into a forum of like playing something like um a Thelonious monk tune like epistrophe yeah with somebody like a Gonzalo Rubalcaba playing it, but it, it was, you know, really groundbreaking, I think, and made it to the All Music Guides, like the best record, th- best of 300 records of all time. Oh, wow. That was a pretty big of thing. Of all time? Of all time. Wow. Records. Um, and it made it, you know, best hits, and won a Juno that year. And then we continued, you know, to keep, as we started to discover more different styles in the country. One of those reasons that came about was when we did the NFB documentary film Spirits of Havana, right. where we traveled through the interior. We'd spent most of our time either in Havana or Santiago, two, two ends of the island. And then we went right, it was a road trip going right into all the other provinces. So going into Matanzas, Cienfuegos, Camagüey, and seeing that, that each province has its very own particular style of music yeah. and they're very very proud you know yeah. of their particular thing 
because Cuban music is not just one thing. And that's, that's the thing that has been the ongoing um, interest, not only studying the history of Cuban music, which is, is even more dense because it's older than, than North American jazz, but all the, the influences of, you know, where it's coming from. Is it Haitian influence? Is it, you know, um, some of it is more African yeah. derived. Some of it is, and then you get into all the different religious groups of the Yoruban. You know, there's like, there's different groups in there that has, have a very different sound. So, I mean, it's an incredible study if you, right. if you get into the academia yeah. of it. But I'm not, a, I, le- I leave that for the academics. <laughs> I love the music. And so I, I work with all the different, different, Musics, yeah, different and have people. made like now twenty something odd records, right? Yeah, well, so. well, that's amazing. And you can you tell tell me something about this latest work that you've been working on? Well, the new thing. Well, what happened with that was I I felt like and um, Larry did too three years ago. You know, I was I had Larry and I had been working in the music schools there, the twenty five conservatory. So we we do fundraiser and we take instruments down to Cuba and we've taken technicians to repair. We've taken instruments, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, seventy percent of the students are female. Women. And, yeah, women. And yeah. we never see them out on the scene playing. Right. I, the jazz festival. I see them all sitting on the sidelines and not up on the stage. And I know they can play, and you know they're just happy to to watch their boyfriends play, or some of them quit, or some of them just maybe go teach, or but a lot of them don't continue. Right. And so I just started to think about that. That our spirits of Havana group have had many, many musicians come through. Most recently, David Varelis, who yeah. now is like one of the top piano players in New York. Right. New York Times have called him one of the best 10 piano players, period, in North America. I feel like I saw you with him, potentially, as oh, well. Oh, so maybe it was David. Yeah, yeah. So probably was David. Yeah. yeah, so, and then another, Daphne's Prieto, Pedrito Martinez, there's been so many, Lario Duran, they've all come through yeah. Spirits of Havana, and I just realized there was not one woman right. that has right. ever played in the group. And Larry pointed it out, <laughs> took my husband to point it out, and I was like, yeah, you're right. So I met this young singer named Daimi Arosena just a few years ago. When I was in Cuba, I organized a jam session. I invited her to come. She came and sang, and she was like 17 at the time, and she was just incredible. Yeah. And after that, I was involved in um, music director for organization here in Toronto called Sistering, and they do a show every year, fundraiser, to fi- help the 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 foundation for sistering. So it's usually three or four singers and I convinced them to bring Daimi from Cuba. And she came and she stole the show. She was so good. That's Everybody nice. just That's great. it was amazing. So after that that I started to think, well, maybe I should try and do something with Daimi and then talk to Larry said, Well, maybe we should put together an all woman group. Yeah. So we went down to Cuba, checked out various young women all in their early twenties like 20, 21, and picked the girls, rehearsed for four or five days, and then went into a studio and made the record. And that record got a Juno. Right. Three years ago. Three years ago. Wow. And now we've we've done a bunch of, like a lot of, quite a bit of touring. I hardly knew the girls at all then. I know them a lot better now. After, you know, they've been living here and touring, and we eat and breathe sort of sometimes together. 
uh, we've just finished our second recording, which comes out now. <laughs> is it October? No, is it this but month? But 14th, but uh, I think it'll it's coming out sooner. Of October? Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to be, right? Okay, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to have some and, copies just in a few days. And the new record is called? The new record is called Odara. Odara. Which means uh, strong, and, and strong and happy. And the group is called? Makeke. M-A, and then the letter K-K, Makeke. Makeke. Yeah. And um, that translates to the spirit and fiery energy of a little girl. Wow. No. Okay, so and the and the Juno award-winning record, I, I meant to ask you what that's that that was just called McKake. McKake, because that was our okay. first. I didn't really think there'd be a second. This was just <laughs> a, you know, this was a leap of faith project. Right. Let's just see what happens. And is the new record the same configuration? It's different. It's got violin in it. Okay. Um, it's a lot more. I did most of the writing in the first record, but now all the girls are writing. I only have like three pieces on the recording. Okay. Um, and everybody in the group is writing material, and the group is really, really great now. And, and, and they yeah. they must be excited about the opportunities. Yeah, I think so. Them. It's yeah. it's been amazing. I mean, we've we've played the big Chicago festival, and we we just um, played the Kennedy Center the day after we did oh. Tiny Desk. Right. There's a, we're yeah, up on NPR. Tiny Desk. NPR. Nice, yeah, we nice. did the NPR show. Yeah. That was very exciting. It's like well over twenty five thousand hits now. Yeah. Oh wow, it. that's great. So it's going it's going great. Okay, that's that's. It's not getting any easier, but it's going great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't make it easy. Quote me on that. You don't make it easy on yourself. I don't think you like a challenge, and that's Uh, that's. I I wish the challenges would get less, but. (laughs) Now you're you're returning to the. Oh, sorry. Before I get to that, are there plans to tour more with this? Yeah, yeah, we're we're going on tour. we're going to be playing, well, Hughes Room, record release is going to be Hughes Room. Then we're going to play Burlington Performing Arts Center on the, I think it's the 20th of October. We're playing the Markham on the, mm, I think it's the 18th and the 19th. We're playing Ottawa Shankman okay. Center. I think that's the right order. And then we're playing Birdland in New York on the 25th. Nice. And a whole bunch of dates. Of, uh, of November. October, Octo- October, October into November. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yep. janebennett.com. On the road. janebennett.com for clear information. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Now you're <laughs> Thanks for that <laughs> plug there, Vish. I'm just trying to remind people, <laughs> keep us focused here. Yeah. Now, uh, you're returning to the Guelph Jazz Festival yes, for yes. a special tribute. Yeah, this is amazing. So, well, um, I don't... All the th- great things I can say about Don Pullen, uh, he was, he was uh, well, number one, he was very uh, a mentor to both Larry and I. He was on my first recording. He was the great um, composer and pianist. Um, he was the pianist. I mean, his history goes back to organ trios and learning, you know, as a young musician, church music in Virginia. Um, later became the accompanist for Ruth Price, uh, Ruth Price, Ruth uh, Brown, Nina Simone. He worked with Nina Simone for a number of years. Um, later was pianist with, um, of course, with Charles Mingus. And then later led his groundbreaking group, which I think was one of the greatest groups of the 70s, 80s, um, George Adams, Don Pull and George Adams, Dan- Danny Richmond in that group too. So they were like, you know, that was the Mingus alumni, and they went out on their own, and they were all writing great tunes and I saw that group a whole bunch of times wow. in Toronto nice. and I saw them in New York and that group was probably one of the most inspiring most inspiring groups to see live it was just uh, dynamite and um, so Don became I met him back personally in I guess it was 85 or something like that and I when I started to think about making my first record and I really um, 
I really persisted, as, as he said to me. You, sh- you sure persisted, because I kept calling him and calling him. <laughs> and finally, he said yes. And we recorded, and he came here in Toronto, and he came. So that record was called In Due Time with Dewey Redmond, too. And uh, we played the bamboo. And then I really developed a very, very strong friendship with him. I, we toured Australia together, and he came to Cuba with us in um, 1990 to play the jazz festival. And he came a lot to play Toronto. He had a lot of friends here in Toronto. Yeah. I made, actually, I made another record with him. I made The Water Is Wide with Don and Billy Hart and Sheila Jordan and Gene Lee and Larry. That was made in 96, I think it was, 95. And he, he was a very wonderful musician because he covered, even though he came out of R&B and church music, he was... Some people embraced him in the avant-garde, saying right. he's an avant-garde piano player. A lot of people thought, oh, he sounds like Cecil Taylor, but he did not sound like <laughs> Cecil Taylor. He, he very much it was a very different kind of piano player, very, could be very lyrical and sweet, but also was very, very fiery, very percussive, yeah. and, and, and an inspiration. And he, and he did a lot of forays into not only um, you know, more freer music, but he did um, rec- recordings with incorporating Afro-Brazilian sounds within his group. Yeah. Um, later, his last records were with um, Aboriginal uh, drum drum group um, the, from the Dakotas, I think they were. Sorry, I can't get their name right now, but I think that group was called Sacred Ground or Common Ground. Okay. And it was very interesting. One of the first people I, I know to do something like that and, and very, very effective and... He was just a, uh, he was just a beautiful musician and person. And so this night, Ajay and I've been we've been talking about this for a long, long time, to present um, an evening of Don's Don's music, and it's finally happening. And it's going to be with J T. Lewis, who was um, a longtime drummer of Don Pullins, and Howard Johnson, the great um, multi instrumentalist uh, Howard Johnson, who was. People might know him for many years. He was he led um, the Saturday Night um, Band on um, Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, yeah, that band. He was the band leader for that. He's a great arranger. He's played in the Last Waltz. He plays tuba, baritone, penny whistle, flugelhorn. Yeah, uh, sings. He's got a, t- a, a, a a group called Gravity, which is ten tubas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Book them. <laughs> and. Um, he was along. He played with Don and uh, was a good friend of Don. So he's in the group. Uh, Larry on trumpet and myself. Um, David Varelis on piano. Who, um, when David first started to play jazz, the Don Pullen record was one of the first ones that he had. Um, my duets record with Don. Actually, I made one, two. I made four records with Don. I realize now four recordings. Wow. Oh. Anyhow, uh, so David, who's just an amazing piano player. And who am I missing? Kieran Overs, who was um, worked a lot with Don and I, um, live at Sweet Basil, and the water is wide, and et cetera. Okay. So this will be a tribute, and it's, it's going to be amazing. We're going to do all of Don's music. There's going to be some surprises, and we're going to be telling some anecdotes. Each person's going to tell some anecdotes about throughout the Just show about, about Don, 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 Don uh, Pullen, because he was really, um, he was a remarkable person. Yeah. So. Okay, well, yeah. I, I, I can't wait to see this in Guelph, and people can learn more about all of this at guelphjazzfestival.ca. I believe, is your performance on Friday or Saturday? Uh, Friday. Friday night, yeah. 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 So, uh, again, guelphjazzfestival.ca. For more information about you, Jane Bennett, 
Com. That's it. That's Thank it. You. I got all of it there. And uh, before we go, is there a song from the new record that we were just talking about uh-huh. with, with your with this band from Cuba? Is there something we can play? M- McK- the McKeke yeah, record. Yeah, yeah. How about um, Dream? Dream. You want to play Dream? Yeah. Why did that come to mind? Uh I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I know because I know I can get you the link. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have it. I have the record. It's lovely. Oh, you do? Yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely. Oh, you I, do? I, I have like a digital copy of the record. Yeah. How did you get that? I get it. I get what I get. Uh-huh. And I don't get upset. You have, you have, you have connections. I'm a connected my man. guy. Yeah. Very good. So I'm impressed. Yeah. Anyway, the, the record's amazing, and I'm happy to play Dream if that's okay. What well, you mind. know what? You play whatever you like. Well, no, Dream's fine. Okay. If Dream came to. I'm more interested in what you wanted to share with people. I kind of like them all right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> But Dream's fine. Okay. All right. Is there anything you want to say about it? You can sing along. (laughs) (laughs) You can dance. You can cry. It's got a good choral, but Spanish. Dare I say you could dream. Yes. (laughs) Jane, Bennett, this was really a pleasure. Thank Thank you for having me at your lovely sunny home here in Toronto. Thank you. Best of luck with everything. Yeah. Hope to see everyone out to the show. It's going to be amazing. And long live Don Pullen.
Brand new music there by Jane Bennett and McKeke from their forthcoming release, Odara, which is out everywhere via Linus Entertainment, I believe, on October 14th. Sounds like what Jane said, it might be out even earlier. But anyway, I believe the release date, October 14th. The song you heard, Dream, Jane Bennett. What an amazing amount of historical knowledge about jazz and Toronto music. That was a real thrill. I'm a fan of Jane's. Thank you, Jane, for being on the show. Again, go see Jane Bennett play live. Go see Jane Bennett and McKay play live. Pick up their new record. Uh, I'm sure you, you will be in for a treat. This show, Creative Control of Ishikana, is brought to you by The Bookshelf, which is an independently owned cultural hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Ontario. It's a movie theater. It's a bookstore. It's a bar. It's a restaurant. It's a music venue. It really has it all. For more information about the bookshelf's hours, listings, blogs, directions, accessibility, and order books from their online store from anywhere in the world, please visit bookshelf.ca. This show is also brought to you by Pizza Trocadero, the finest pizzeria in all of Guelph, Ontario. They, they make everything. Their specialty pizzas, they're untouchable. You can have, just get those. That You can learn all about them at trocaderoguelph.ca. They are located at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph. You can call them at 519-829-2444 for pickup or delivery. Pizza Trocadero, thank you for sponsoring this show and, and for all of the pizza you have provided to me and my family. It means a lot to us and our stomachs and our mouths, probably other other parts too. Creative Control of Vishkana is available via iTunes and Audio Boom, and then I noticed that some people will take the episodes and then they'll put them on other things that I don't know about, which I guess is just part of the deal of making stuff and giving away for free. People just do whatever they want. So thanks. Anyway, primarily iTunes and AudioBoom.com. Go to Vishkana.com. That's my website, and you can learn all about how to access those things. And then uh, on the podcast page, you can easily look through every single episode of the show to date uh, you can also make a flexible monthly donation to the podcast if you go to patreon.com and look up creative control of vishkana which by the way is also on facebook and on twitter at vish creative and you can listen to a version of this show every wednesday at noon eastern standard time via cfru.ca or if you're in the region cfru 93.3 fm and guelph one of the greatest campus and community radio stations anywhere so check all of those things out all right that is it for me i believe i just want to tell you that uh u.s girls meg from u.s girls is on uh the next episode of this show so stay tuned for that as it were that's it thank you for listening goodbye for now up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.